Our text this morning is going to be Galatians 6, verses 11 to 18. Hear now the word of the Lord. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. From now on let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the time that we've been able to spend in the book of Galatians. And Lord, we ask now that your spirit would reveal your word to us, that you would open our eyes and ears our minds and our hearts, that we would be able to see and hear and understand and receive your word, and that it would bear fruit in us. Lord, get me out of the way, and may it be Christ who receives all the attention and glory this morning. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, we've reached the end of our series in Galatians, and I have the privilege now to end it off with the final few verses of chapter 6. Uh, this closing passage affords us the opportunity to uh, do a bit of a review of the book, so we'll be uh, revisiting a few key passages from previous chapters, and also try to draw out some principles from Paul's last few statements. So let's begin with verse 11, and we're going to be moving around a bit in Galatians and in a few other places this morning, so have your Bibles at the ready. Paul says in verse 11, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. What large letters? Wouldn't it be something to see the original draft, to see Paul writing the words large letters using large letters? If the book of Galatians were an email, we might use all caps, except that wouldn't have worked because ancient Greek was written in all caps. Uh, so maybe extra large, extra bold font would have to do. And now we don't know for certain whether or not Paul actually physically wrote the entirety of the book of Galatians. Uh, for some of his other epistles, he made use of a scribe, a secretary, uh, someone who wrote while Paul would dictate. And this was the case for the book of Romans, where we read that uh, Tertius was the one who actually put the pen to the papyrus. And there is strong evidence to suggest that a number of Paul's letters uh, were written this way with the, uh, with the help of a scribe. Uh, the apostle Peter was also thought to have used a scribe in his case, Silas, to write some of his letters. Some commentators uh, think that up to this point in the letter of Galatians, Tertius was the one who did the writing, and then Paul took over in the closing paragraphs, adding his large letters, kind of like his signature or his seal of approval, so that the reader would accept the whole letter as his writing. Other commentators believe that Paul physically wrote the whole letter himself. 
But regardless, in this section, Paul reinforces what has previously been written. So he is claiming full responsibility for the whole letter. He says, I have written to you with my own hand, using my own effort. I endorse this letter with the full weight of my apostolic authority. And so we are confident that the Holy Spirit has superintended this letter. Like all scripture which has been breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. But there's another interesting point I think that needs to be made about Paul's large letters, and it could be that uh, they were used, Paul used large letters, because his eyesight was so bad that he had to use giant writings to see what he was doing. Many commentators believe that when Paul refers to his thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians, he is talking about a visual impairment. In that text, Paul recounts how, even though he prayed for it to be taken from him, God allowed him to live with some kind of bodily weakness, a messenger from Satan, he called it, as a reminder to him that God's grace was sufficient for him. That way he would learn to rely on God's strength and not his own. So this, this eyesight theory is sort of squares with what we saw earlier in, in Galatians chapter 4, where Paul recounts his first coming to the church of Galatia. Uh, when he arrived, it was with much weakness, and though his condition, condition was a trial to the church, uh, they didn't despise him for it, but rather they were compassionate and sympathetic. Paul says there that they would have given him their own eyes if that were possible. And so it seems reasonable to think that Paul was living with some kind of visual injury or impairment, of course, in a time long before corrective lenses or laser surgery was available. In any case, we can say that Paul's large letters emphasize the fact that the truths in his letter are not to be missed. They are crucial. Paul is emphatic. He warns that his instructions are not to be overlooked or forgotten. And so now to remind ourselves just exactly what Paul is contending for, let's do a bit of a flyover of the preceding chapters to refresh our memories. Starting in chapter 1, first of all, and uh, you can follow with me if you like. Paul begins by asserting his apostolic authority. Chapter 1, verse 1. I, Paul, an apostle not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So Paul continues to assert his authority through the first chapter and a half, where he details how he was called and set apart by God as an apostle to the Gentiles, how he was affirmed and received by the other apostles, having enough authority to rebuke Peter when he fell into error over the same topic that was being dealt with in the Galatian church. Paul is not a man-pleaser. His call has been to preach the gospel, the pure gospel, and that is what he has done. He has diligently labored to call people to faith in Christ. There is no question whether or not Paul's instructions are to be trusted and obeyed. Paul's doctrine is true doctrine. His gospel is true gospel. And it stands in opposition to the distortions that the Judaizers have brought into the church. If you remember, the Judaizers have come in with a teaching that circumcision and other ceremonial aspects of the law are necessary for justification and right standing before God. Necessary in order to obtain and maintain salvation. Well, Paul is clear in chapter 2, verse 16 now, for Jew and Gentile alike, a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we also, that being Jews also, have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul goes on to say, and I'll paraphrase, that no one can be saved by keeping the law, because quite simply, no one has kept the law, nor can keep the law. We're sinners. Under Adam, our federal head, in our natural state, we're born sinners, and we've continued sinning. Law-keeping for justification is an impossibility. As Pastor Riley likes to say, that ship has sailed. Paul continues to explain, using God's covenant with Abraham, that the moral law was never meant to provide justification. It was there to lock all men up under sin, so that at the right time, they could be set free by Christ and faith in Him. Similarly, the ceremonial law had no saving power in and of itself, but functioned in shadows and types, pointing us to Christ. Paul says, if you don't recognize that, you have missed the point. So now back in our passage, chapter 6, verse 13, Paul reiterates that the Judaizers themselves haven't kept the law, even though they want to make a show of having done so. They were sinners, like all the rest, but they were first century virtue signaling. They were showing off their outward holiness, but their attitudes demonstrated that they were inwardly corrupt. They had not been perfected. Indeed, no man can be perfected or made right with God by works of the flesh, by keeping the law, moral, ceremonial, or otherwise. Moreover, no Christian has a higher standing before God based on having kept some aspect of the law. Everyone in Christ has equal footing before the Father. We all are all heirs. We are all sons. Now in chapter 3, verses 26 to 28, Paul says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. True Jews, Paul explains, are not those who are Jewish outwardly, either by birth or by circumcision. True Jews, the Israel of God, says Paul, referring to the church in chapter 6.16, are those who are born of the Spirit, who have received the Spirit of God in their hearts. The true Israel of God are those who trust in Christ. Those who, like Abraham, believed in God's deliverance from death. Israel are the children, according to the promise, children of the free woman, not the slave. Children not marked outwardly as Jews, but those circumcised inwardly of the heart. This is the circumcision not made with human hands, but performed by God, making us a new creation, giving us new desires to love him with all of our heart and all of our soul that we may live. To go back then, Paul says, and to pile law on top of grace, on top of Christ, as though he wasn't sufficient, is to be enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Enslaved to things that have no saving power. We need to remember the salvation equation. Christ plus nothing equals everything. Christ plus anything equals nothing. And the reason the Judaizers wanted to keep circumcision was so that they could avoid persecution. 
unlike Paul, they were man-pleasers. The Judaizers were trying to push enough Judaism into Christianity so that they could keep on the right side of the Jews. They were concerned not with inward holiness, but with popular opinion. The more Gentiles the Judaizers could convince, the bigger their crowd would grow, and the more people they could boast in, labeling them as their own disciples. Actually, as I studied this, I shuddered to consider how many impressionable Gentiles might have gone underneath under the knife for fear of losing their salvation, or a horrific idea, and all because of these wicked false teachers. Now in our context, North America, and Altona specifically, I'm not aware of any pressure being applied for Christians, uh, you know, applied to Christians to become circumcised. If that's a movement that exists, it's a, it's a very small one, thankful for that. But I can think of another issue that has come to the forefront in which the church is under a lot of pressure to compromise. There is a large, vocal, and proud movement that has made significant inroads into the modern church and into our local churches here. Not unlike the Judaizers, this group is comprised of the educators and the educated, the high-minded, and in some cases, deep-pocketed. Many of them are the powers that be in our community and our nation. They are the self-described tolerant, compassionate, and loving ones, but they will cancel you if you don't affirm their cause. Vocal resistance will be met with online attacks, public cancelling, cries of hate speech, and possibly government intervention. Time will tell. How sad it is that this movement has claimed whole churches and denominations as their own, boasting in them as it were. We as the church are under constant pressure to succumb to the culture. Whether that means taking up the cause of the month, celebrating sexual sin, compromising on the sanctity of marriage, the sanctity of the family, the sanctity of life. If only we would share in the world's virtues and signal them like they do, maybe we'd be accepted. Well, it won't work. First of all, because we don't share the world's so-called virtues. But most of all, it won't work because the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. Even if the flag of the month gets someone into the door of your church, it will not get them into the kingdom of heaven. We may visibly, as a church, we may visibly and vocally support the cause from time to time, if it's truly a just cause in the eyes of God, if it's in line with Christ's dominion mandate, which is to call people to repentance and make disciples. But Christianity is not about signaling our virtue. It's not about drawing attention to our accomplishments or our righteousness. It's about pointing people to Christ, his accomplishments, his righteousness, his death to save sinners. And that is the only flag that the church ought to be waving. For the Judaizers, it was the cross that they were ashamed of. Christ's atoning death, instead of being their comfort, their hope, their glory, it was as the prophet Isaiah foretold and the apostle Peter confirmed, the cross was their stone of stumbling and their rock of offense. Judaizers and Jews wanted to boast in their own perceived holiness, their own self-denial, their strict adherence to man-made rules and traditions, Christ's death, his death for sin, undercut their self-righteousness, their human achievement. There's nothing humbles like the cross, which is why it's hated by everyone who relies on their own works for salvation. For the Apostle Paul, 
His shame was in everything but the cross. Everything that he had attained, everything that he had accomplished prior to conversion, he counted as lost, worthless, garbage in comparison to knowing Christ as Lord. Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Israelite lineage, check. Circumcision on the eighth day, check. Ceremonial law-keeping, check. Let's turn for a moment to Philippians chapter 3, where we'll find another account of Paul warning the church about the Judaizers. Here he outlines all of his qualifications, which he could have counted as something, but he does not. Philippians 3, starting in verse 2 to verse 11. Paul says, Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I am more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says everything he had, his lineage, his law-keeping, all of it, he considered of, of no value as compared to being found in Christ and receiving his righteousness, not by law-keeping, but by faith. And Paul gloried not only in sharing Christ's righteousness, but in sharing his sufferings to the point of death if necessary. Now this is not to say that Paul is entirely against the practice of circumcision. We have an interesting situation in the book of Acts chapter 16 where Paul takes Timothy and circumcises him in order to gain access to the Jewish temple and an opportunity for evangelism. He does this to remove an obstacle for the gospel and to gain a wider audience among the Jews. The side note is, I mean, who could trust, who could doubt Timothy's commitment to missions, by the way? He's willing to do this. It was for good reason that Paul entrusted his ministry to him. But you might say, then, wasn't Paul being inconsistent by endorsing circumcision in one situation and devaluing it in another? Well, we would say no. Because in the case of Timothy, circumcision was a purely cultural consideration. In our day, it would be like going to the mission field in the Middle East and adopting their dress code so as to not distract them from the gospel. Becoming like those you're trying to teach culturally, then you might save some. We know of some missionaries in remote northern Ontario who have gone to great lengths to learn the local uh, indigenous language 
even though most of the people uh, there speak English now, right? Um, they do this just so they can bring them the scriptures in their native tongue. I think it says so much about the missionaries' concern for the people that they're committed to reaching them as the tribe and tongue that they are, honoring their heritage where appropriate, and removing every possible barrier to the gospel. They're prioritizing the saving message of the cross above all else. But the Judaizers are valuing circumcision above Christ, above the apostles' teaching, and above the unity of the church. Now we're in Galatians 5, actually 6, 15. And Paul says that neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. This outward sign is legally unnecessary and spiritually meaningless. It's not a matter of Christian practice, but of personal preference. It's like meat offered to idols. Eat, don't eat. Just don't cause your brother to stumble. Our modern-day modern equivalents might be style of music or clothing, alcohol use, or maybe observing a certain day as higher than another. Partake, don't partake. Observe, don't observe. Just don't cause your brother to stumble. And don't insist that fellow believers agree with you. Don't try to impose your conscience upon them. These are matters of personal preference. They have no bearing on your standing before God. They count for nothing in terms of salvation. What matters is whether or not you're born again in Christ. What matters is faith working through love, Galatians 5, 6. What matters is whether or not you're walking in the Spirit and bearing fruit, Galatians 5, 22. What matters is whether or not you're bearing one another's burdens and thus fulfilling the law of Christ, Galatians 6, verse 2. Now, the people of God are not going to agree on every matter of conscience. I'm sure that you've recognized this already. Unity of spirit does not mean uniformity of thought. What it does mean, though, is that we must make, as a group, a determined commitment to not allow secondary differences to divide us. We are united in Christ. We are one body, with Christ as the head. So we must strive to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And Paul has had it with this divisive issue. He has spent his whole ministry dealing with this problem in various contexts. Now, in verse 17, he says, Let no one cause me trouble. Basically saying, this discussion is, is over. I've dealt with this question in this letter and elsewhere. Nothing more needs to be said. There's no more revelation coming. There's no controversy. I've been clear. Paul has been concise. The case is closed. Scripture has spoken, and where Scripture speaks, it is authoritative, and it is sufficient. And I'm reminded of a preaching principle I learned a few years ago at the Simeon Trust Workshop. The principle was called staying on the line. The instructors there would draw pictures to, to teach us these principles, and in this, in this case, he wanted us to imagine for a moment that Scripture was a, a horizontal line. And the pastor's duty, the preacher's teacher's duty is to stay on that line of scripture. And we can all recognize the dangers of going beneath the line of scripture, saying less than the scripture says, perhaps leaving out some challenging passage or glossing over some hard-to-understand theological concept like predestination or election. 
maybe avoiding some hot button issue like human sexuality or gender roles in the church, or trying to make the gospel easy to swallow by removing the, necess sorry, the necessity of repentance of the reality of hell, which is actually quite popular even in our town here. So we recognize the dangers of going beneath the line of scripture and saying less. But there is an equal danger of going above the line, adding to the scriptures, requiring things of the people that God does not require. It would be a great temptation to make rules that he has not made, perhaps in an attempt to safeguard the ones that he has made, as though somehow we could improve upon his commandments. And then like the Judaizers, we can judge others who don't hold to our extra-biblical requirements. This is why we need to be cautious with books, commentators, and even confessions, because as well-meaning as their writers may have been, those works are not spirit-inspired, they're not infallible, they're not authoritative, as Scripture is. Scripture alone is the sole infallible rule for matters of Christian faith and practice. And so Paul's large letters have affirmed the authority of his epistle. It is indeed Scripture. But before he signs off, he makes one more parting comment that I think deserves some attention this morning. Continuing in verse 17 now. He says, For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The marks of Jesus. Paul says, These people who are so hung up on circumcision, on body modification, I can show them a thing or two. Paul's flesh bore the actual marks of righteousness, true marks of following Christ, marks of persecution, marks of suffering for the gospel. Now, it's not like Paul to boast, other than in Christ, but Paul could have rolled up his sleeves or whatever his garment would have had at that time, and he could have pointed to scars where he'd been beaten for preaching Christ crucified. He could have bared his back and shown where the Jews had lashed him. Let's turn just briefly to 2 Corinthians, verse 11, where Paul gives an account of his bodily sufferings. 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23, where again he's dealing with the Judaizers who are troubling the Corinthian church. Paul says, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one, I'm talking like a madman, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, Danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from these things, sorry, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Paul has not been afraid to endure hardship for Christ, certainly not ashamed of it. He rejoiced in it, having been considered worthy by God 
to suffer dishonor for Christ's name. And he ends his boasting here to the Corinthians with this statement in chapter 12, verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. Paul didn't value his accomplishments or his abilities. He boasted in his inabilities. He was content in his weakness. To quote commentator Matthew Henry on this passage, when God does not take away our troubles and temptations, yet if he gives grace enough for us, we have no reason to complain. Grace signifies the goodwill of God towards us, and that is enough to, to enlighten and enliven us, sufficient to strengthen and comfort in all afflictions and distresses. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. Thus his grace is manifested and magnified. When we are weak in ourselves, then we are strong in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we feel that we are weak in ourselves, then we go to Christ, receive strength from him, and enjoy most the supplies of divine strength and grace." Unquote. So is that our attitude when we suffer? Even in a small way for Christ, or for the gospel, or for righteousness? It isn't our natural response. Our fallen nature demands commendation. We demand comfort. We demand our own way. But, thankfully, as we grow in grace through the Spirit's sanctifying work in us, and by way of the trials and persecutions that we go through, our sufferings do become easier. We begin to understand through experience that the world has been crucified to us and we to the world. And the time may come when persecution gets turned up a notch or five, and we will need to be immovable in the strength that God provides. So let me ask the question this morning, do you, do we as his people, bear on our bodies the marks of Jesus? I don't mean do you have scars on your back or your arms from beatings. Not everyone is a martyr in the fullest definition of the word. What I mean is, are you passionate for the things of God, the Apostle Paulus? Do you boast in the cross of Christ? Do you value God's word, his will, his worship? Do you read, pray, and sing? Do you defend his word when you hear it challenged? Do you obey his commands when the world calls it folly? Do you exalt Christ as king above all kings? Do you love his church, his people? Are you doing good to those who are of the household of faith? Do you hate sin, all sin, and most particularly your own sin? Do you exhibit the fruit of the Spirit? Christ does not indwell a person and leave them unmarked, unchanged. God's people will change, we will grow, and by God's grace, we will progressively put sin to death and, and grow in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We will learn to seek unity in the body, valuing restoration and reconciliation, brother to brother, and brother to God. Paul says that for those who walk in this way, 
By this rule, peace and mercy will be upon them. This rule, this way, is the only way to have peace with God. Mercy through Christ. Not through ceremonial law-keeping, not through virtue signaling, but through the cross. And that has been the overarching theme of Paul's letter and our study of it. Peace with God, the forgiveness of sins, and the appeasement of his wrath, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. May we all walk by this rule, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with our spirits. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your word. Thank you for the Apostle Paul's large letters exalting the cross of Christ. We thank you for sending your own son to live a sinless life, obeying the moral law perfectly, fulfilling the ceremonial law perfectly, that he could be the spotless lamb, satisfying your wrath for all that would come to him in faith. Lord, we pray that the truths that we've heard this morning will cause us to grow. For we are the circumcision not made with human hands. Your spirit indwells us. We are a new creation set apart for your service, for your glory. So may we bear the marks of Christ. Help us to live as effective, faithful ambassadors of him and point people towards the cross. Lord, if we do boast, let it be only in the cross. Let us regard each other as more significant than ourselves and seek peace, reconciliation, and unity in the body. May we as a body stand firm on Christ as trials and troubles press in on us, knowing that you are sovereign over all of them and will deliver us safely through for your glory, sanctifying us in the process. Father, now as we approach your table, we thank you for the elements that reorient our focus back to Christ, back to the cross once again. We ask that you bless this bread and the cup to the nourishment of our bodies and the edification of our souls. Lord Jesus, we thank you for taking the punishment that we deserve, the chastisement that brought us peace, for bearing our iniquity and shedding your blood that we could be forgiven. Holy Spirit, we thank you for regenerating us, for applying the benefits of Christ's death to us, for sanctifying us and sustaining us, not by our works of the flesh, but by your divine power. Amen.